Church of Thyatira, bless you, bro. Thank you. You're never wasting time, brother. We appreciate you. Open up your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. We think it's such an honor to have our missionaries in town. And he came to bring his oldest to hang out with my second oldest for the birthday weekend. And so they'll be in second service together. But it's so cool seeing our kids grow up together, having known Tisa and I, I mean, having known her, and we were both single. And just what God is doing. The, the people who are the best people are God's people. Can I hear an amen to that? Come on, look at your neighbor and say, you're the best kind of people. You're my people. Amen. You may not look like me. You may not talk like me. You may not eat like me, but you're still my favorite kind of people. Amen. We may have different hobbies. You know, Jerry's up here. Jerry's into arts and crafts, and she likes to sew and knit. I like to wakeboard, you know, but she's my kind of people. Amen. And you may have a different hobby than me. You may have a different dress uh, style than me. That does not matter where you shop, where you eat, but it's our heart for Jesus Christ that makes us family, brothers and sisters. Praise God. Okay, so let's go to Revelation chapter 2. If you are new with us and uh, those who are here today uh, new, we thank you. And those who haven't been around for a while, we're going through the book of Revelation verse by verse. We are not yet to the, to the scary part, to the symbols yet. We're right at the beginning where Jesus is giving us the judgment of his churches. He is judging his churches. So today we're going to be talking about Thyatira. And just as a reminder, we have here a chart on our notes, which can be found on the app or on our website. I have it all laid out because Jesus normally when he's talking to the church gives us like a declaration. He gives us praise, rebuke, instruction, warning, and then he ends with something powerful about his nature. So Revelation chapter 2 verse 18, we're going to talk about the church of Thyatira. It's the fourth, fourth church in our series and uh, the message today is hold on. Somebody say hold on. Come on, whatever you go through, you got to hold on. So hopefully you're going to keep holding on with us. Hold on. Learn from this church today. And let's start in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that what you are doing now is more than you did at first. That's pretty good. Amen. That's good. But nevertheless, here it comes. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Jesus went to name calling now. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So she's causing a mess. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Somebody say, God's not playing. God is not playing. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on. Somebody say, hold on. To hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I also will give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. As if you're listening, can I hear an amen? Amen and amen. Powerful. These are the kinds of words of Jesus that we as a culture got to get woke to. We've got to wake up to what Jesus is saying to the churches. That's why I always have the one-liner when people say, only God can judge me. And I go, well, that should scare you. Only God judging you, that should scare you because I can't do what he can do. This, this one judging us has the power to strike us dead and send us to hell. 
This is a real judgment from our God. And the God of the Bible is so compassionate, so loving, that he gives us multiple chances to repent, as we see in this story, that he says, I have given her time, but she has not listened, so it's over for her. But for those who are following you, are following her, I'm going to give you another chance. He's even given them another chance because he doesn't want them to be judged. God, have mercy. Help us, Lord, to receive what you're saying here. Here's a quick summary of the things that I have on the chart, just so as we're studying, you can get into the Word and kind of see where I'm going with this. Did you notice Jesus' opening, opening declaration? What did he say in this, this opening declaration? He has eyes like fire, feet burnished like bronze. Some people try to say, well, this means that he's African-American because he looks like that. That is not true. I put you in fire. All of you going to look like fire and start burning, okay? All of us, all right? So the idea is not that we're supposed to look at a skin color or to say Jesus literally has red eyes that are like little flames. We are supposed to listen to the description and say he is amazing. Otherwise, when we hear about white as snow, then that means we're all going to be lily white like Norwegians, okay? That is not the idea that we're supposed to get. What we're supposed to get from the scripture is white as snow, burning like brass, eyes like fire. We're not supposed to get into a, a battle over who, what skin color is he. We're supposed to understand that he is emanating, emanating the qualities of holiness. He's emanating the qualities of power. He's emanating all of these things. And we do know that all cultures come from Adam and Eve, and whatever color the dirt was that Adam and Eve was made out of, I'm cool with. How many are cool with that? And how many are cool with whatever color Jesus is as long as his, his blood was red and was shed for you? Amen. You know, sometimes I talk to people and they're like, man, his, you know, you know, I look more like Jesus than you do, or Adam and Eve, rather. I look more like Adam and Eve because of the color of dirt. And I'm like, where are you looking at dirt at? Because some dirt look really dark, some dirt looks really tan, some dirt looks really red. I don't know the color of dirt that he pulled that from, okay? In Florida, where my parents are from, dirt looks like sand. It looks like my color. It looks like tan. In, the, in the India, when I was in India, it looks red. Even in Georgia, it looks red. Around the Midwest, it looks dark. You mix it all together, you get the beautiful colors of the rainbow, right? You get all of us together as one. One race, the human race. So don't get caught up in that. If, if, if he is a different color than you have seen presented by predominantly the Roman Catholic Church and so forth, if you see him as that, don't be uh, If you see him differently than that, don't be surprised, okay? Because if you're looking for white, skinny, blonde hair, blue eye, emaciated Jesus, chances are you're going to be a little bit shocked when you actually see him. I don't know anybody from the Middle East that looks like that person. That person looks like somebody from France, okay? <laughs> You know, that's not probably my Jesus. My Jesus probably got some skin color to him, and he's probably a little bit more healthier than that, you know. Emaciated Jesus. He wasn't eating enough of Mary's cooking. He needed to eat more. All skinny. I feel so bad for that Jesus always hanging on the cross. How many know he's raised from the dead? Amen. My Jesus is not on your, it's not on your billboard like that anymore. My Jesus is not hanging from a cross. He's ruling and reigning. So just, you know, remember that. So we see that that's his opening declaration. And then what's his praise for the church? His praise is that they do have good deeds. They're a good church, that they are full of love. They're full of faith. They have good service and perseverance. And then he even goes on to say, you guys are doing now more than you used to do. That's amazing. And let me just share this as well. Thyatira is another one of those churches we don't know much about. You can search all the commentators, and they don't know much about it. That's why I have it highlighted so you can check me on that. But for the most part, it's once again another church that probably started from Paul or another apostle's disciples going out and starting churches in that area. It's not someplace that we know they literally went to personally, but it's probably just disciples of disciples. But what we see that's fascinating about this is that whenever the church started, they were doing a certain amount of work for Jesus. But now as they've been going on, probably 20 or 30 years, we see them doing more for Jesus. So they're not slowing down, they're speeding up. How many want to speed up for Jesus? Not slow down. I love what my dad said. He didn't retire, he refired. He said, now that I don't have to work for the man anymore, I can work for the man, the God man, Jesus Christ. So my father in a retirement village is now handing out flyers, doing Bible studies, going to the skate park bought a table and a tent, going out to the community. He's using that time as retirement to refire for Jesus. Dad, why didn't you refire in Chicago? I think the answer is obvious why he's refiring in Florida, though. 
I know the weather's a little bit better there, but he refired for Jesus. Wherever you're at in life, wherever you're at in life, refire for Jesus. Amen. Get on fire, stay on fire, and go from glory to glory to glory. And now here comes that rebuke, sandwiched in between the two compliments. It's a great way for us to learn how to give people rebuke. Put a little bit of that bun there, a little bit of sugar on top, you know, end with a little bit of sugar at the bottom at the end, and then just hit them real hard, right, when they're not looking. If you ever hear somebody start like that, most of us are keen to it. What's up? You know, that's what we'll say back to them. Somebody comes to you, man of God. I love you so much, Gene. You're just a blessing. Like if I, like if I started with him on the van ride, uh, the car ride home rather, in the truck. If I go, brother, you're just amazing. Have I ever told you how much I love you? And I'm like, and by the way, when you were up there, no, I'm kidding. And then, you know, and then at the end, if I if I end with, and then you know, I just love you, brother. That's a good way to do it, though. How many pr- appreciate that, though? Because you just, you just don't always just want it to come right at you like that. But we don't want to make that a law. Some people make that a law like never. They'll say, never critique unless you compliment first. Well, in just a few churches later, you know, uh, Laodicea, Jesus gives no compliment, all critique, boom, take it. This is what you need right now. So some of the parents can relate as well. Sometimes you don't have time to remind them how much you loved them from all the other stuff they did. Stop it right now. What is wrong with you? I don't have time to tell you how much I love you, how much we've been through together, but you better stop right now. That's what it's like sometimes. And we won't talk about marriages, right? Because sometimes it's hard to say, honey, have I told you how much I loved you? Sometimes it's just, honey, what are you doing? Lord, Lord, help me. Just pray for me, right? Not you. Pray for me, the pastor. It's my confessional time up here. It's the opposite. Most people go into dark you know, uh, closets. They confess to the pastor. I stand under bright lights, and I confess to you. Are you praying for me? Amen. And so here we get this rebuke about this woman Jezebel. And now you have to know Old Testament because remember, they were never without Scripture. Sometimes people try to sound uh, cool and try to say, you know, the, the disciples didn't have a Bible. All they had was the Holy Spirit. And, oh, we don't always need to look at the Scriptures. All we need is the Holy Spirit. W- what a bunch of baloney. It's so sad that people even from the pulpit would say that. And I've heard that from churches that are super large and in charge. And you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe how many people that pastor is deceiving by saying they didn't have a Bible. Of course they had a Bible. It's called the Old Testament. They quote from it. Even the book of Revelation, they say some, somewhere up to 50 to 100 quotes, uh, you know, references to the Old Testament. It's amazing how often they spoke about the Scriptures. To say they didn't have Scriptures is, is absolutely silly and, and ignorant. So right now we're supposed to know who is this Jezebel. So let's just take a moment here to stop and think about it. In my notes, I have the, the references there in the book of Kings. But she was a queen during the time of Elijah the prophet, but she wasn't an Israelite. She was a pagan, and Ahab, the Israelite king, married her, which the kings were, everybody was forbidden, did not marry outside of the Jewish religion, but he went and did that, and on top of that, she was like a witch, a priestess. She practiced sorcery, and she divinized to her false god, and she corrupted, even though he was already corrupted, so you can't blame it all on the man, come on, but she assisted in corrupting the king to further worship Baal, to practice witchcraft, and to do things against God's people. Somebody say, don't be like Jezebel. Jezebel is a negative character in the Bible. And here's how her story ends. She gets tossed out of a window and dies. Yes, it sounds crazy. It sounds a little bit like what we get mad about ISIS doing. But here's the thing. When we believe in a God of judgment, we believe in that, like Muslims, so we don't want to critique them in a way that might put, you know, point the finger back at us, but here's the deal. We only do what God tells us to do according to inspired scripture, not a demon-possessed prophet who heard from a demon in a cave. But yes, our God did some things that you may feel uncomfortable with. And so at the end of her life, because of her wickedness, she actually had somebody murdered, by the way. So she's receiving the death penalty. Let's maybe clarify that a little. It's just not just kill them because they didn't do anything wrong. She was deserving of the death penalty. She had taken an innocent man's life just to get his property. And when it was time for her to die, she thought she was going to a parade. She got all dressed up, but it was the opposite. She was tossed out of a window, died as she fell down, and then the dogs came and ate her body. They couldn't even find much to bury her with. That's in your Bible. Now, guess what? Jesus is calling people in the church that person. (laughs) So if you knew your Bible and you're getting called Jezebel, you know that's not a good thing. 
He is calling you probably one of the worst characters in the entire Bible. And then when he uses the language that I will cast her, let me just show you that he says, now I will cast her on a bed of suffering. We are supposed to have the same analogy in our mind as when the literal Jezebel was cast out of a window to die. He is saying, I'm going to do judgment on this Jezebel, this metaphorical Jezebel, just like the literal Jezebel was cast out of a window. I'm going to cast her down on a bed of suffering. She is going to suffer for what she's doing. And as we go into the rebuke, we begin to understand that there's something about what she's doing that's causing people to sin. And it's sexual immorality, sexual immorality, everybody get that, and eating food sacrificed to idols. So he gives them a warning, and he says, listen, I'm going to judge her. Don't be a part of that, because I'm also going to strike down the children, those who are following her. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to repent of Jezebel's teachings, hold on to the teachings of Jesus. He says, I'm going to give you authority to rule the nations and the morning star, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And then he ends with his uh, saying, let the churches hear what the Spirit is saying. But what I want us to get here is that Jezebel is in their church, even though they're doing all of those wonderful things. Do they love is there a lot of people there that love God? Yes or no? Yes, according to the scripture, is there a lot of people there that are faithful? Yes. Is there a lot of people that have good deeds? Yes. Is there a lot of people there that are persevering? Come on, yes or no? Yes. Are they doing more than what they used to do for Jesus? Yes or no? Yes. But yet they're tolerating Jezebel. Notice this, that you can be right in doing all the right things but still wrong by tolerating those who are wrong. Come on, we have got to get that today because I talk to a lot of sweet Christians and they say, Pastor, I don't hurt anybody. I don't wish ill on anybody. I just love everybody and I love Jesus and I may not agree with so-and-so, but it's not my place. I just love everybody. And they hide behind this, this false understanding. It is really a false understanding of mercy. They think they're being merciful by tolerating what's going on. They think they're being Christian by not saying anything, and yet Jesus has a problem with them. Look at He doesn't just say, I got a problem with Jezebel and her followers. He says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. So everybody get this. God can have a problem with us because of what we tolerate. Because we don't help people in their wrong. Go to Ezekiel, my brother, please, chapter 3, and let's learn about the watchmen. Because we have a role in the body of Christ to be watchmen. Somebody say watchmen. Thank you. In Ezekiel chapter 3, we learn about the call of a prophet to stand on the wall and let the people know when danger is coming. If I placed you on a wall and I said, let me know when danger is coming, and you didn't let me know, is that you being nice? Well, I just didn't want to wake up anybody. Dude, the enemy's coming. They're about ready to wake us up to kill us. Well, you know what? I wasn't so sure if they were the enemy. I didn't want to judge. I didn't want to judge if they were the enemy. Looks like they're the enemy to me. They have swords, and they're not on our team. They're hurling, you know, the catapults hurling rocks at us. What did you think they were? Well, I just wanted to tolerate them for a little bit, give them some time. Give them time to what? Destroy the entire city? Go to verse 16. Somebody say, I'm a watchman. And to be gender inclusive or a watch woman. A watch woman. Believe it or not, even in cemetery, I mean seminary, they had to check me on that. Why are all your examples he's? Why is everything, you know, mankind? Why is everything a watch man? I'm like, because that's what the Bible says. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm still using Bible vernacular, but Adam, did you know Adam literally means mankind as well as means Adam, a dude? Because that's how we were named. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean women are special. You guys are also special. And for you, just for you, I have to show that I'm a little bit woke. Just a little bit. So watch women. Do I have any watch women in the house today? I don't feel bad if I say that. Some out of the King James will be upset that I added watch woman. Okay. But you can be a watch woman and a watch man. But yes, that's why we use that language in the Bible, because it's meant to stand for mankind or humanity, and those words were written that way. So let's not beat up the Bible with our 21st century nonsense. Amen. So at the end, look at it, at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, verse 17, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. 
So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked person, you shall surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their, lo- their life, that wicked person will die for their sins, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Mm. I don't know how people miss that, but look at verse uh, 19 here. But if you do warn the wicked person, if you do warn the wicked person, they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways. They will die for their sins, but you will have what? Saved yourself. Let's keep going. Well, I, I guess I'll preach to the sinners then. No, let's just keep going. You're supposed to preach to sinners and saints. Again, when a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before them, they will die. Since you did not warn them, they will die for their sins. The righteous things that person did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. Somebody say accountability. It's a good thing. It is a good thing. Look at that. I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the righteous person not to sin, and they do not sin, they will surely live because they took warning, and you will have saved yourself. Do you notice that we are continually told, as Ezekiel was told, to be watchmen? We are responsible to preach and to warn. We are not simply supposed to look at the culture and go, well, that's somebody else's job. No, that's my job. I am my brother's keeper. That is your job. And so listen, everyone get this today. This is my Jesus. This is the Jesus that loves you. This is the Jesus that died on the cross for you. He is saying, I got a problem with you if you're tolerating evil. You and I have got to get to the point where intolerance is normal. Now, let me explain it to you in the same way I did when we went over Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. We are not supposed to be intolerant outside of the church and to be discriminatory towards those outside of the church. Our biblical examples for that is Daniel and Babylon. Daniel had to work with non-Jewish people. Daniel had to put up with their mess. Daniel did not try to change Babylon by Jewish law. He changed Babylon by keeping Babylon out of his heart and being righteous even among the wicked. He was a light in a dark place. Does everybody get that? So even though I believe we can legislate and bring in righteous laws, it is not our job as Christians to bring about a theocracy and to force everybody to be Christians. But it is our job to live so Christ-like that they see the stupidity, the foolishness, the wickedness of their behavior, and they turn towards Christ as many were following Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and, Abed- and, and, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon. We are to set the examples. Another example of this is, is Joseph when he was in Egypt. Joseph didn't have to say to Potiphar, you're a wicked sinner. You're a pagan. You're going to hell. I'm not serving you. He would serve him as long as it didn't violate his law before God, and he was an example to him in that family. So where does the intolerance have its place? In the church. The intolerance happens in the church. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to remind you of the message I already preached on this, and then we'll move on. But if you could put it in there, brother, thank you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, It's not our business as Christians to try to judge in the sense of judicially outside in the world. But we are to judge those in the church. Thank you, my brother. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 right here towards the bottom. He talks about uh, the, the wicked man that's around them. And now look at what he says in verse 12. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go to our scripture in Revelation and understand how we tie that together. When he is saying to them, I've got a problem with you because you're tolerating Jezebel, does that mean that we're supposed to go out into the world, go find Caesar, go find all the wicked rulers and say we're going to cast you out and put you out and put you in jail and all of that? No, what we're supposed to do is in the church. Somebody say right here. If you're sassy, say right here. Right here, baby. Right here. Starting here. I can't tell you what they're doing over there, but I'm going to tell you what we do here. We're not going to tolerate Jezebel. We're not going to tolerate sin. 
Now you might say, well, pastor, what about Christians who do sin? Is there hope for them? Absolutely. For a Christian who sins, they can receive forgiveness. But if you start living in continual sin, we're not supposed to even tolerate that mess. That's why when we go back to uh, the, the Corinthians passage, it says, what is he saying here? Look at it. He's going to be very clear. Look at verse 9. Paul speaking. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. How many can say amen to that? If you had to cut out just that list of people in your life, you probably couldn't go to work tomorrow. You couldn't catch an Uber home. I mean, it would be a lonely life, right? Just us four and no more. It's a wicked world we live in. God raised up more righteous folks, right? But he said, not in the sense of the world. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Do you see how now the rebuke is real? Somebody say, that's real. This is not Jesus taking it too far. This is Jesus guarding his church. And this is where I feel we need to stop for a moment because most of us are not a Jezebel. In all of my years of pastoring, I have probably only ran into about one or two, and I won't mention their name, but maybe if you take me out to Red Lobster, I might tell you who they are. You know, as I got the bib on and I'm eating the Red Lobster on your tree, Pastor, who has been a Jezebel in the church? I just want to know just... I'm going to slide this piece of paper over with a pen. You just write the name and slide it back and let me know who that person was. I might be tempted to tell you. But I've probably only known maybe one or two, and I've been in ministry over 20-plus years. They're, 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 a rare, they're a rare breed. You don't generally meet people that are that outlandish. Even in the Old Testament, out of all the wicked things going on, Jezebel definitely stood out as being a wicked woman. It was a bad thing that she did, and it was really crazy. So it wasn't a, uh, a thing running around all the time. So I, I am, just to let you know, those who use these terms, who use them flippantly, oh, she got the spirit of Jezebel, and then the Next time they don't like some, oh, you got the spirit of Jezebel. No, I think you don't know what Jezebel is or who she's like. I just think you're a troublemaker. Maybe you're like Jezebel calling everybody Jezebel. So if you're around somebody that's always calling somebody that they don't like Jezebel, maybe you're the Jezebel. So I don't like this idea like everybody causing problems in the church is the Jezebel. No, sometimes people just don't know better. They're, you know, they're needing to learn and to grow, and we do have to help them. Don't get me wrong, because slander, slander is one of those things that Paul did mention that can get you a one-way ticket out the church, okay? Yes, if you are a slanderer, that can get you out the church as well. There it is. You can get put out for that unrepentantly, you know, continuing in that. But this person is very specific in what she's doing. What she is doing in her false prophecies is she's leading people away from God into perversion and sexual immorality, and she's leading them back to idolatry. Now, in our day and age, that seems weird. Like, man, how could a Christian go back to idolatry? Just come to Mardi Gras in New Orleans one year, and you'll see how fast it happens. It's really not that unimaginable of a thing, right? Like, those of you who have been there, like, did you ever think to yourself, those of who have been to Mardi Gras, you would ever see the time when people are shouting out to a, a float with the statue of, of Bacchus on it? Like, did you ever think that? I never thought I would be trying to get somebody to talk to me about Jesus while they're shouting out to a, a statue, you know, of, of some Greek god. But it's, it's real. It happens. And especially in their culture, because remember, Christians are the minority. Christians are the minority. So as we often think in this culture, as Easter's coming up, for example, we think in our culture, go to church. Your mom wants you to come. Go for your grandma. In their culture, mom was a pagan. Think about it. Many of you here can probably even relate to that in some ways, that you're the first one in your family to get saved. But in their culture, Christianity wasn't even a thing to be admired. It was actually looked down upon. So imagine your parents, your grandparents are pagan. And they're saying to you, come on over. You know, the festival is happening. I've made your favorite food. And as you come over, they say to do something, you know, light the candle for, for Bacchus. Light the candle for Diana the goddess. Light the candle for her. Sounds kind of like our Roman Catholic friends, right? 
That's another subject, right? But our Roman Catholic friends, we have to love them and pray for them. And some of them, I do believe, know Jesus because it's a genuine uh, doctrine they have of the Trinity and of Jesus and so forth. But when you add in so many of those things, the mother of Guadalupe, you add in all of these saints and prayers and confessions, it can, it can get dangerous for their soul because the devil doesn't care what the saint is called or looks like. If it's not going towards Jesus, it's taking you away from Jesus. So just be careful with that. But this specifically was obviously false gods. Light a candle. Give a little food to the God. I don't know if you've ever been to a Chinese restaurant. You know, boom, put a little food before the Buddha. You'll see a plate out there. Burn a little incense. And so this woman, in one way, let's think about it, isn't the vicious, you know, like she's the wicked witch kind, you know? Like after everything's been exposed, she's magnificent, magnificent. You know what I'm talking about. And then like, and, and, then, and then she turns all dark and wicked. No, I think, I think she was everybody's friend. I think she looked a lot like Ellen or Oprah. Because what is she saying when she comes around? She's going, hey, everybody. Don't let the preacher tell you you can't have sex outside of marriage. It's fine. Look, I'm not married to Stedman. You can do it too. And don't let somebody tell you you have to be in a, you know, a monogamous relationship to someone of the opposite gender. Look, I'm in a relationship with Portia, just like Ellen, just like Oprah. Hey, come on. Lighten up. Take on some sexual immorality. It's not like you're denying God. You still love God. And here's some food to eat. Yeah, it's to an idol, but come party with us. Come celebrate these gods that set us free and give us secrets. Notice that Jesus mocks her. A lot of times people don't understand that Jesus mocks at times. Here's Jesus mocking right here. He says, tell, and to the rest of you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. You can tell like Jesus is messing with them. Deep secrets. We have people in our culture that make a whole video called The Secret. And then you have to buy it, and it's a secret, and everybody tells it, and then it's not a secret anymore, but we're still going to charge you for it. It's The Secret. And here Jesus is mocking them, going, you don't have any secrets. You don't really have anything that's so special. You're walking around treating this as like a secret. You're wanting to be looked at like you're so special that you have things that others don't. But really, it's just Satan's deception. I don't know about you, but when I look back on my B.C. days before Christ, I was a fool. But I thought I was a special kind of fool. I thought, like, nobody thinks like me. I'm so deep. If you asked me to explain the universe, I would contradict myself three times on my way to the clinic because my life was messed up. Come on, somebody. I would be thinking I'm so deep and so wise while I'm sleeping in my car, but you know, I was special, but I was a special kind of fool. And that's really all the devil wants to do is make us his fool. And so what he does is he gives us whatever he thinks are secrets. Like, come on, let's all just be honest. Is this new in our culture to be sexually perverse? Is that a secret? Is it a secret to just have sex however you want, to be however you want with your morals? No, that's how they've lived in cultures throughout all societies. As a matter of fact, you will find throughout human history, there has been more idolatry than there has been Christianity. There has been more sexual perversion than there has been the husband and wife family model. And it's actually the husband and family model renouncing idolatry that brought victory to so many nations and culture groups, even starting with my own. I'm not proud of the Italian culture. Look what the Romans became. They were pedophiles. They were rapists. They were murderers. They, they were debaucherous. They were wicked. They got so wicked they put prostitutes in the temple just to have sex to appease your God. I'm not proud of that. What did Christianity do for my people? It uplifted them. It redeemed them. It brought in the power of love through the gospel, had them care for their families and orphans, had the husbands return to their wives, one man for one woman for life, raising their children in the fear and admonition of God. I don't know about your culture, but I think we all need Jesus in our culture. So anybody who goes back to their culture and kind of has like these glassy-eyed view of their culture, wake up, people. Without Christ's culture, all of our cultures were damned on their way to hell. So once again, Jezebel seems like she's woke. You know, Jezebel is enlightened. Jezebel wants to get everybody to go back, uh, you know, to their culture and to their roots and, and, and go back to all the things that they used to do. This is my culture. Man, it's not that culture that's going to save us. Jesus is the only one that can save us. And then notice what he says to her. This is what I love about my Jesus. Somebody say, my Jesus. 
No one goes to hell without them willing to go there. Please, everybody get this. No one will go to hell without their choice involved. That's the God that I worship. I have a, I have a belief in a hell. Yes, I do. But I only believe those who willingly want to go there, go there. I don't believe there's anybody wanting to go to heaven that God casts into hell. Those who are going to hell is because of the judgment of their own choice. Notice right here. I have given her time to repent. Even this wicked Jezebel, he didn't, he didn't just let her go. Just like Judas, year after year after year, he's giving him time to repent. Even when he lets him go and he comes back to betray him, he calls him friend, giving him another chance. The only difference between Peter and, and Judas is that Peter came back to Christ. Judas hung himself. Jesus did not give up on Judas. Judas gave up on Jesus. And I want everybody to get this. Jesus doesn't want Jezebels to go to hell. Jesus doesn't want our worst enemies to go to hell. The Bible says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. It was not prepared for us. But he is very clear now. He says, but she is unwilling. She is unwilling. And so that means now her will has been cemented in, and that is her fate. And sometimes we think to ourselves that in heaven they will change their will. It does make for good plays, but I just want you to have a deep thought. I go both ways. Don't get me wrong. I think some may have regret, like the rich man in the grave, that he wants to come back out and, and uh, do things. He's talking to Abraham, says, I want to go to my family and friends. But I also can see that there being a hardness of heart that never is even willing to turn to God even in eternity. Here's my reason for thinking that is because they may see the pain and the penalty and all that they've done, but where would the regret come from? Does it not come from our conscience inspired by the Holy Spirit? So what if God for all of eternity takes away the conscience for them to feel regret and all we see is what they've become in the image of their own making, which is a self-serving being? And so in hell, as C.S. Lewis said, it's always locked from the inside, not the outside. And so it's not because they regret it even now. They still choose it even now. And we get a piece of that as we go to the book of Revelation, that as now they see God, there is no more confusion over whose religion is right, no more confusion over the Jesus of the Bible. But instead of bowing to worship, they rebel they rebel. And doesn't that remind us of Pharaoh's army? He's gone through all of that, all the signs and wonders, and yet he still rebels. And so this, to me, also gives me a sense of God's judgment that after they are in hell, they will continue to desire to rebel against God. And that may be a way for us to understand the justice of God allowing them to be there for eternity is because in eternity they are now baked into the decision to not have God. And if you want to know more about that, read about the great divorce by C.S. Lewis. Now, others, I think, will show regret, but there is a way that maybe others that we can talk about here that will have no regret. I don't know. There's a story where we see regret, and then there's a story we don't see regret. So uh, we, it may be both. It may be either or. It may be neither. Come on, somebody. How many know, though, if you go to hell, though, it's your fault? Whether you regret it at the end, you going there now, it's your fault. We do know that he makes them bow down and confess him as Lord. So at that point, there is one thing that they don't get to choose, and that's whether or not those knees go down now. It will be like a magnet drawing you down to the floor, your knees hitting that ground, confessing him as Lord. And that will be the last thing they see is us smiling and worshiping, amen? As we're all on our knees going, Jesus is Lord, their mouth is, Jesus is Lord, and then they're gone. Let us walk in the fear of the Lord. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. It's going to go bad for her, but what else is going to happen? Those who suffer, uh, excuse me, those who follow her will suffer with her, and he will strike her children dead. And this is where I want us, once again, to get it before we move on. I want to make it practical. Somebody say, make it practical. Uh, somebody say, make it plain, preacher. Amen. But before I do, I just got to be a good Bible teacher. I want everyone to see this. That now those have, who have followed her will suffer the same fate. This is where it gets very serious for me because don't so many of us feel, for, feel sorry for those in Scientology. We're like, oh my gosh, I feel sorry for you. But how many know they're going to go to hell if they keep following Scientology? I saw three Mormons standing on the street corner today. I felt sorry for them. They believe in a man, you know, Joseph Smith, like a prophet, and they believe all of this stuff is going to happen, and it is ridiculous. I feel bad, for, but they're going to go to hell for that. I feel bad for Muslims. I really do. But they're going to go to hell for that. We have to understand that we will be responsible for who we follow. 
For some that even say, well, I follow, you know, Dawkins, and I follow Sam Harris. I follow what's known as the four horsemen of the atheistic apocalypse, these, these smart scientists. You'll go to hell for that. There will be nobody, everybody get this, there will be nobody on Judgment Day that can say, well, they told me this was the way it was supposed to be. They told me there was no God. You know, they told me I came from, you know, the goo through the zoo to you. They told me that God is going to say, no, you're responsible for believing that. Now, sometimes the question of children come up because the word is brought up here. Children simply means followers. We see that through the scriptures. So it doesn't literally mean that he's just going to start striking dead her children. It's those that she is a spiritual mother to. But everybody, get this, the children, like how I believe, who die in stillbirth or an abortion, I believe they are not responsible for actions that they do not know what they are undertaking. And so for the handicap, for the special needs, for children of all cultures, I believe God judges them differently, like, like we say for the unborn. I believe in what's called the age of accountability doctrine, and that is that God does not hold people accountable for what they cannot understand. But you have to get this, that the Bible does say at some point that child will be responsible. And so we oftentimes uh, don't think about it, but 14, 15, what is that age of responsibility? When is that age of accountability? I can definitely see it when I go to high schools around here. I'm like, you're definitely old enough to go to hell, son. You're old enough. You know what you're doing, man. You're old enough to go to hell. So I don't know when that cross is over, but listen, God is also dealing with them personally. I don't believe that even if, because sometimes we hear it's like, oh, it's so sad. You know, well, maybe they were raised Hindu and Muslim, and that's all they knew. See, I don't believe that God allows a soul to be lost like that without speaking to their heart. And so we hear stories from missionaries, from children as they grow up, that they knew something was wrong about Islam. They cry out, and then God visits them. I believe God is faithful to do that. And that's another reason for us to do missions, so that we can also solidify the visions, the dreams, the impressions that they're getting. If you want a good book on this, you can read Eternity in Their Hearts, Eternity in Their Hearts by Cyril Richardson, uh, Cyril Richardson, and he talks about visiting unreached people groups and other missionaries and how they have found that there was people and groups that rejected what they were being taught about worshiping ancestors and worshiping other gods because they knew God would not be made out of, of clay, out of wood, and that their ancestor wouldn't be there. They had a, a unified a belief in a unified God that knew them and cared for them and that they had a, a dream to receive from missionaries. Some of them believed that a book was coming from the son of that God. I mean, it's amazing. You can read these stories. So once again, I don't think children here refer to underage children. I believe that's symbolic of her followers. And now notice, they're getting struck dead too. So do not follow those outside of these scriptures. Do not make excuses because sometimes I see people be very lackadaisical, even when I talk to them, because I have Muslim neighbors and Hindu neighbors, and I talk to them, and they go, well, I don't know, because you know, I'll teach them about Jesus and the importance of the cross and all these things. And, and you could tell like it really made a difference. Praise God, it made a difference. But then I'll see them say something like, ah, you know, I don't know. You know, I'd have to start over again. I think it would make some people in my family mad. And they're, and they're taking it so nonchalant that they're, they're almost assuming that at, at the end of their life, if it was wrong and they're, you know, they're in eternity, then they'll just make it right then. That's not what's going to happen, friends. This is the most important subject. That's why when we're street witnessing and people walk by and they go, I'm good, and I go, I don't think you are. You better take some time to find out if you're good. Or others are like, oh, I'm just so busy. And I always say back over the mic, what is more important than this right now? I've actually had money that I'll kind of, you know, kind of draw them in, and I'll hold up like a $20 bill, and I say, I have $20 for anyone who can tell me something more important than what I'm doing right now. $20. Here it is. Come to the mic and tell us something that's more important than what I'm doing right now. And somebody would be like, science. And I'd be like, when, when you die, science keeps going on, right? <laughs> so it's not as important as you think it is, right? Loving people, you know you're going to die. I keep bringing it back to that, right? You know you're going to have a time where you can't love the person next to you anymore. The most important thing we can give people is the gift of eternal life. It's to let them know this life ends and all that we do here is all just but a shadow. And all, only what we do for eternity is that what counts. You see, because this is what I would say scares the hell out of me. This is what puts the fear of God in me is when she says at the end, she says, I will re, uh, God says, I will repay each one of you, not just her. I will repay each one of you according to your deeds. So everybody's going to stand account for their deeds. 
So the person who thinks that something is more important than receiving forgiveness for their imperfections and sins on the day of judgment is out of their mind. There is nothing more important. The most important thing we can do in this world is be forgiven of our sins, know our creator, and be ready to be judged by him. Let's just think about this one more moment before I make it practical. I got to get there quickly, but please just think about this. I love watching Discovery Channel. I love learning about nature. Anybody else like that? This is interesting, right? I love just seeing what God has made. I mean, from the depths of the ocean to the stars to what's ever going on in our world today, I just get caught watching that. And then sometimes, you know, these reality shows about people doing stuff and their journeys through life. I just, I love it. I love life. I love God's creature, uh, creation. I love all the creatures of God. Some are scary, you know, but I just, I love it. I love it. But here, here's the thing. Do we all know where this came from? As Christians, we do, but I just kind of sit back and I'm asking myself, like, this woman, like, you've spent your whole life swimming with dolphins. <laughs> do you know the one who made dolphins? Because he's even cooler than dolphins. Like, I'm glad you love this dolphin. You know, they're swimming with the thing. I'm like, I'm so glad you talk dolphinese now. But have you ever learned how to talk to God? You guys know what I'm talking about, these shows that... And they're like, they're talking to them, they're petting them, and they're just, they're just, I mean, whatever animal it is, they become like a weirdie to that animal. They start to transform and almost look like and act like it. They're hanging out with the little monkeys. They're hanging out with squirrels. Somebody just put up a video on one of our friends' page, riding with a raccoon. They had a raccoon, a baby seat, driving around with a raccoon. And it's just like people have gone nuts for creation. But what about the creator? What about the one who made you? Have you learned how to talk to him? Have you learned how to communicate to him? And this reminds me of what the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, that they have exchanged the knowledge of God, the creator, for the creation. And so be ready to meet Jesus. Amen? Amen. It's not in our notes, but I just wanted to end with some practical things. Today we did our confession of faith. And would you please put it up there for us? Because he said, hold on. Somebody say, hold on. You see, he said, hold on to what you've been taught. It's not a burden. Jesus said, I'm not going to add more to you. They're already doing great. They, they have a love for their father. They're serving Jesus. They have faith. And he says, listen, I'm not going to put a burden on you. I'm not going to tell you to do more and more things like they teach in other religions to keep pleasing me and keep doing this to please me. That's a false God that needs that. Our God said he just wants our heart. How many are happy all Jesus wants is, is your heart? Everything else will follow, but if he doesn't have your heart, he doesn't want anything else. And that's why talking about my friends in the Roman Catholic faith, I really want them to wake up from that because I feel so bad for them. You know, they're fasting right now during the time of, uh, you know, until Easter, 40 days of Lent, whatever. They're, they're doing all of these rituals. My friend, just call on his name. He's quick to answer. Seek him and you will find him. Sometimes they go to these uh, holy sites and they crawl up the stairs. Their knees get all bloody. They've learned that from their priests to, to beat themselves in the name of their religion. I'm not saying we shouldn't be dedicated to God, but isn't it sad when you have even supposed Christians that think that, their love, that, that God's love for them is dependent upon this thing they do? Even our best works do not earn God's love. God gave us love, the Bible says, while we were yet sinners. And so my encouragement to you is let every good work, let every good deed come out of your love for Jesus. Hold on to these things. Hold on to the belief that there's one God who is the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Don't let anybody take you away from that. When I told you guys a couple weeks ago that I met with some pagans, it was sad, wasn't it, Brother James, to hear that one of the pagans who now worships um, uh, Odin, the god of the Vikings, that he's a missionary's kid. Could you imagine your daughters turning away from the God of the Bible to now worship Odin? They had a sweatshirt on, like we have Chicago for Jesus. They had a sweatshirt on that said, in Odin we trust. Instead of having the cross, they had the hammer. They had these, you know, these emblems on. But why? Why did they let go of that? Because there was probably somebody like a Jezebel that said, you don't need to hold on to Christianity. You can hold on to this, and you can have a lot of sex, a lot of parties, a lot of festivals. They offered them something that seemed better in the temporary. And Jesus is saying, don't you fall for it. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on to the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. 
We've talked about it so often here, and I don't have time to get into every one of the, the facts about the Bible. It's good to be reminded, though. Look it, up, look it up on YouTube, you know. Is the Bible reliable from Josh McDowell or for um, Anthony Rogers and a lot of other great Bible teachers? These scriptures have been handed down by the ancestors of faith from all the major continents, from Africa, from the East, from India. They have handed down these scriptures with their lives. And during the time of the dark ages and things when it was only in Latin, chained to the pulpit and only the priests understood and most of the common people never even understood what the priests were talking about, the Protestants, the protesters took these scriptures and put them in the language of the people and they paid for it by their lives. Some, the Roman Catholics, burned at the stakes because they simply put this Bible in the language of the people. And all the people who have tried to disprove this Bible... You've only seen it proven true over and over and over again. The prophecies, the predictions, the telling of the future, not only that, but the moral laws that it gives that frees the soul. Sometimes, you know, you may not want to argue with people, and I, I'm with you. Just take somebody to the Beatitudes and say, what, have you ever, what person have you ever heard say such a teaching as this? Turning the other cheek, loving your enemy, being merciful, inheriting the earth, you know, uh, not committing adultery with your eyes. These are, the, these are the greatest teachings we've ever known, and they're in our scriptures. And yet, once again, once again, I hear people hand back the Bible to believe something that some man has said that fails every single time. Some of my other hobbies is I like watching documentaries of these cults. You can actually see there's a whole series on Netflix of all these cults and where they led people. You know, it didn't matter if they were rich. There were some that were going through Hollywood, and it, and it was like a motivational cult, and they were branding their behinds. They were literally branding their behinds with hot, hot pokes and everything. And you just, you hear their stories. You hear these stories from Jim Jones, or you hear the stories of these other folks, and it's always the same. I was raised a Christian I, I believed in God, but I didn't like this, this, and that about Christianity. And then here came this Jezebel to tell me everything that I liked was now acceptable. Let's go to the next set, please. Hold on to these things. We put them in our confession of faith because they are to be held on to, that Jesus is going to come and judge us. This is what we reiterate here, and I know I've talked about it a lot in this sermon series, but how many see a God that loves us and a God that judges us through Jesus Christ? Does anybody here think that's a contradiction? How many see that as a compliment? I love my children, but I discipline my children. Our country wants to have peace and justice, but it will punish invaders, right? Like, you know, military forces. We will go to war. It is a common misunderstanding to think that a judge or someone that is going to punish doesn't love us. That is a misunderstanding in this culture. Do not believe that. Jesus loves us enough to judge us. Let's just look at our culture. Since we have stopped fearing God, what has happened in our cities? Do they fear the police anymore? No, because they don't fear God. Do they fear the consequences of sexually transmitted diseases? No, because they don't fear God. Do they fear going to jail for their corruption? Absolutely not, because they don't fear God. The new thing is now, whether, you know, Jeffrey Epstein did commit suicide or not, the new thing is now is do as much bad as you can and then commit suicide right at the end. That's the new thing for the rich and powerful. Do all that you can, game over, and then just go back to dust. Little did they know they're facing their judge. And I say that back to people all the time that get so mad about hell. Vinny, would you come, please? They get all mad about hell, and I go, do you know what hell is actually for? It's for those who have done the wickedness upon this earth against the plan of God. There's a judgment they deserve. So I always say to them like this, does Hitler win in the end? Because if there's no judgment, Hitler won. Didn't he win according to the world? According to the animal kingdom, he won. Boy, he had a lot of power for some time, didn't he? He got to do whatever he wanted. And then all he had to do was just kill himself, now turn to dust? Oh, he won. See, aren't you glad more people don't actually live the way they talk? Because the ones who say they don't believe in judgment actually could live the most craziest lives, right, in their mind. I'm so glad there's a lot of hypocrites for their worldview. I'm glad. This is what I say to them. I'm glad you're not living like how you actually, you know, how you say you're supposed to, how you believe. Well, we should still be good to people. Why? Well, because it's nicer. Why? Because we get to have a longer life. Why does that matter? Why not die young? Because who likes to get old? Right? 
You see, you just throw it right back in their face, and they have no consistency to their worldview because they have tossed out a God as judge. And I'm thankful that, that the majority of us don't commit suicide. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that still the majority of us just don't walk out here and do whatever in the world we want and say, well, I just turned to dust anyways. I'm still glad that God has a conscience inside of us that we realize that this is not the way we're supposed to live. And I believe that oftentimes, as I've heard other preachers say, we're not reminding them of a God that they don't think exists. We're reminding them of a, of a God they know exists and that they're wrestling with in their conscience every day. So oftentimes when we're preaching, they're getting mad at us, but it's really them getting mad at a God that they've been wrestling that night before, the night before, the night before. I believe in the eternal reward of believers. There's not just punishment that day. There's reward. Amen? I know we've already confessed it, but let's just go through it again. The next ones, please. I believe that God is establishing a church. If we think that somehow that there's no more church, whatever we think has happened to the church, we are now discrediting Jesus. We are now saying that Jesus failed. Jesus said, I will build the church by church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. When people tell me, well, I can't find a good church, I can't find a good church, keep looking, because Jesus said the church of Jesus Christ, his church would not be overcome. I'm not saying it's not, it's not. It's always easy. It can be hard. But when I hear some people, well, I don't need to go to church, or I don't believe there's any more Christians left, or a good church, all leaders have sinned, you're calling your Jesus a liar. And that's always, always a bad step to take when you're leaving a good church because it offended you or you're going to try to do this on your own. Jesus did not say to do it on your own. He said you would be saved on your own between you and him, but he did not say work out your salvation on your own. He said to confess your sins one to another, to make disciples of the nations. He said to go out and teach these things. And these are to be our relationships. And that I believe in the salvation for mankind, amen, is in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, for the glory of God alone. You will be tempted. I know you will because I have been too. You will be tempted by the sad stories of other people to think that that is mean for Jesus to say he's the only way. You'll be tempted by the tears of people saying, well, what about this religion? And what about these precious people? What about the Tibetan monks? What about, what about these, these precious people over here and all of this? This is what I always say back to them. This is what I always say. The God of heaven and earth is going to judge justly. And what you and I think, what you and I think is unfair will never be seen unfair on the light of judge, in the light of judgment. Because when we see that Tibetan monk on this earth, what do we see? Oh, he's just so peaceful. But we don't know the hatred he's harbored in his heart towards God. That literally says, I do not want to be around the God of the Bible. I'm going to pretend that I don't even exist and that reality is not real because I'm that upset about a God who made reality. You see, we think that they're just, they're just, you know, they just don't know any better, and that's just going to be okay on Judgment Day. It's true they don't know any better, but they are going to be held accountable for what they rejected. The Hindu monk, the Hindu priest, the, the whatever person you think that is so pious. Oh, look at these Mormons. They pedal their little bikes around. They're such kind people, such good neighbors. All of that may be true, but on the Day of Judgment, their wickedness will be revealed. Why didn't you submit to the God of the Bible? Because I wanted to be my own God. The Hindu monk. Why didn't you go down and preach to those people? Because I wanted to show how spiritual I was. We'll see the anger and the wickedness of hearts exposed in the light of God's judgment. C.S. Lewis, who's come up quite often in this talk today in our sermon, C.S. Lewis said it like this, On the day of judgment, you will see the creatures who have denied God as more hideous than the worst monsters we've ever imagined. You will see the heart of rebellion and sin towards a God that was covered with piety, that was covered with, oh, I'm so special because of this religion I follow. You will see the hatred they had towards the God who created them and their rebellion. And then he said, those of us who they looked at as fools. Those of us that they said, oh, we pity these street preachers. We pity those backwards Christians who are so behind with the times. We will be more glorified beings than any angel or any creature they ever imagined. He said, he said if it was seen among men, they would worship us. And the Bible actually says they will bow down before our God in Revelation and worship right before us. There will come a time, everybody get this, where we will be standing and they will be kneeling and we will be standing as their judges, as they're worshiping God. Can I hear an amen to that? 
Y'all ain't ready for that. I got to get to second service. You already started me over. That's all right. Look at this right here. Come on, somebody. Somebody say, dash them to pieces. Do you know? Come on, let's stand up. Second service is going to get mad at me. Let's all stand up, please. Altar workers, would you come, please? Man, I get too excited when I'm with you guys. You guys are so awesome. Lord, help me to say this in 30 seconds or less. He says, you're going to have judgment over them as well. He says, the one will rule with me. The one who stays on Jesus' side is going to rule. What they thought they were getting following Jezebel, they don't get in the end, do they? They don't get it, but we do. And we will be a part of dashing them to pieces. This is a fun way to end the service. Let's do this as a sermon illustration. I always love my friends. You know, I saw my one friend, he was talking about Jesus is the remedy. And so he had big pills up on here, like a big bottle of pills, and it had scriptures, you know, like take your daily vitamin of Jesus. I just love those guys who do that. God bless their dear hearts. But if I was going to do an example today, I would take some pottery up here and put our president's image on it, dash it to pieces, stand on it, and go, that's what's going to happen on Judgment Day. We're going to judge nations. Kim, Kim Jong-im of uh, whatever, Un of uh, Korea, we're going to dash him to pieces on the day of judgment. You're going to rule with Christ. And then you're going to receive the morning star. Who is the morning star that you will receive? Jesus, 2 Peter 1.19. Let's end on that. Let's end on the happy note. Some of you are going to be making piñatas of the world, the world leaders getting ready for judgment day. But how many know that gives you an image of what we're going to be doing? Right now, it's Lord save Biden. Lord save Kamala Harris. Lord save the North Korean dictator. Lord save those in China. But on judgment day, it's Lord, where's the stick? Because we've beaten them. We're dashing it to pieces. I wish some of you weren't afraid of that. <laughs> some of you who now are a little bit shy will be mighty warriors on that day because we're riding back with him. Look at what it says in the scriptures. It says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do also well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Jesus and his word is considered a morning star. And he says here, thank you, my brother. He says here in the book of Revelation, I'm going to give you authority, and then I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give my word to you. So what Jezebel never could give, Jesus gives. How many want the morning star? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for bringing us. Help us to hold on to your teachings. Help us to stay true to your word in these times. And may we be ready, God, when you come back to rule and reign with you, to have you as our morning star, to tell the world all about you. If you don't know Jesus, just ask him into your life right now. Say, Jesus, be my morning star. Rise and shine your light in me right now, Father. Send your son to forgive all of my sins. Pray and ask the Father to give you Jesus. Ask Jesus to come inside your life. Father, you hear our prayers. Change us, rearrange us. Those who have been deceived by Jezebels, repent of those sins even right now. Repent of any sins that are coming through false teachers. Hold on to the scriptures. Don't grow weary in well-doing. You will reap a harvest. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Can you bless the Lord with me, saints? Isn't he worthy? I pray that you hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You are dismissed, but feel free to come up for prayer as we start to welcome in the second service, folks. We're going to go right into worship. Is that okay, guys?